Well, good morning. So good to be with you today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful, at least, at the 9.15 hour over in the venue. They laugh at my jokes every once in a while. May their tribe increase and flow into this room with increasing measure. Hey, if we haven't yet met, love to connect with you after the service. So glad that you're here. It's a busy, busy weekend here in Kearney. Busy uh, couple weeks with our um, state champion soccer team. And yeah. Great, great performance yesterday at the state track meet and graduations today. So grateful for all of our graduates. Graduations last weekend for Kearney Catholic. Grateful for those graduates as well. And really grateful, though, that you came in here to church today because we have a message that I think today will be beneficial for graduates in the room, high school graduates, for college graduates, for those in midlife like myself, for those who are looking at their legacy-making years. How do I finish well in my legacy-making years? And we'll get to all that in just a moment. As we open up to the story in 1 Kings, we'll start 1 Kings chapter 3 with King Solomon. And uh, we'll be there in just a moment. But, but before we get into that, I thought since we haven't shown these icons in a little bit that you have on your handout, we'll just go through these icons real quick to give a brief reminder of where we've been in this series. We've covered a lot of ground since January 1st. As we've talked about the main episodes of the Bible, and we seek to go through the entirety of the meta narrative of the Bible in 2018. And so you'll see up on the screen here a number of fill ins for those blanks on your handout. And these are the main episodes that we've already gone through to get to this point. The story of God's story begins, of course, with creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. And the second episode that we discussed after creation is the pinnacle of his creation, which is making you and me making humanity in his image and his likeness. That means he's impressed something of his character on every person that you've ever met. He made us in his image and his likeness. And that lasted for a short time, that things were beautiful. Now, we still have his image and likeness, but humans quickly fell into sin. And that's the third episode, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, and we have gone and done likewise. Shortly thereafter, you have in the book of Genesis the flood and after the flood, you have the Tower of Babel, where humans are seeking to reach up to God and say, I'm, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be the same as God. Give me knowledge, Judge, just like God. And God humbles them. And right after that, you have this turning point where God is working with humanity. He makes a covenant with humanity through a man named Abraham. And Abraham was the first of the patriarchs. There's four different patriarchs from the rest of Genesis, which takes you through the remainder of that book, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he says to Abraham, and then he repeats this covenant to the other patriarchs, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation, but not for your own sake, for the sake of others. Just like he says to us, I'm going to bless you. Bless you. <laughs> can't be that. <laughs> but not for your own sake. For the sake of others, he blesses us. And so we go from the patriarchs to the Exodus story when Israel is then found in slavery in the book of Exodus, and Moses leads them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the promised land, which is then led by Joshua. Joshua leads the Israelites into their long-awaited promised land. Things are going well there for a short time. Before we come to the period of the judges, when Israel gets a number of unsavory judges ruling over them, 
And they all live in such a way as is described at the end of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Said, I'll do as I see fit. I'll be God of my own domain. And so there's this spiral to represent Judges. They continued to spiral down into sin, and yet they were forgiven by God and brought back into his loving care again and again. Then finally, after the Judges, well, we come to the episodes that we're in right now, which is the period of the kings. And the kings begin, of course, with King Saul and then King David, who we've spent a little bit of time talking about here these past couple weeks, and then today, King Solomon. And the Israelites beg to God before God gives them Saul, would you make us like all the other nations of the earth, God? We don't want to be unique. We want to be like everyone else. Be careful what you ask for. God allows them to be like everyone else, and he gives them kings. And the first two of the three kings don't do too well. Let me tell you a little bit about Solomon's story. He had every opportunity to succeed, but he squandered it. Have you ever known someone like that? There's lots of contemporary examples like that. Without naming names, we can think of many, many people in the news over these past couple years who had every possible opportunity to succeed. And they started off really well, but they squandered it. I think of my own life and sometimes where I had every opportunity to succeed, and I squandered it, and yet God in His kindness, God in His grace forgave me. Well, Solomon had every opportunity to succeed. He was set up for a win, huge success as king after his father David handed the throne, after, handed the throne to him. King David was a, a man after God's own heart. He made mistakes. He made terrible mistakes, but he repented. And he came back to God, and he worshiped God with all of his heart, and he prepared the kingdom of Israel, put it into a great place to hand it over to his son Solomon. And as he hands over the kingdom to his son Solomon, he leaves him in a place of peace and prosperity. And he says to Solomon, you be strong and courageous, the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And he does what every father needs to do for every son or daughter at one time or another, and hopefully many, many times, he blesses his child. And he says to his son, I believe in you, be a a man of strength, live with courage before your God in 1 Kings 1. Obey the words of God, live faithfully to the law and you will prosper before God. Rely on God's promises, not on your own great intelligence or strength or sense of being right. Rely on God and he will prosper you. And Solomon, I believe in you. And God will be with you. And if you lean not on your own understanding, but you lean on God, God will strengthen you and your throne will succeed. And with this charge, with this heritage, Solomon started really well. You see, David left the kingdom in great shape for Solomon to succeed. When he hands it over to them, there's a period of peace and prosperity in the land. There's no Palestinian uprising. There's no threat from Iran. There's no threat from North Korea. There's no multi-trillion dollar debt hanging over his head. He starts on level ground and has every opportunity to succeed. 
and he started well for his first years. Turn with me, if you would, if you're not there already, to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we'll pick up the story there. God comes to Solomon in 1 Kings 3, and he appears to him in a vision of some kind in the night, and God says to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you, Solomon, in verse 5. You just ask whatever you'd like me to give you. What would you ask, God? Anyone? Wisdom, okay. Any others? Peace, wealth. Okay, I got some honest people here. Yeah. Comfort, comfort, yeah, I'd like some comfort. Prosperity, happy children, healthy children, good children, successful children, on and on, godly children. I mean, many, many great things that we could ask for, and indeed, God invites us to ask him for all of those things. Jesus invites us again and again to ask for our needs and even sometimes our wants. He promises to meet our needs, doesn't promise to meet all of our wants, but he does invite us to ask for our wants as well. But Solomon's response to God's invitation shouts to me about priorities. Look here at verse 6. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart, understanding to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? We're going to see four words that describe Solomon's life. And the first one I heard up front is wisdom. Solomon asked God in this moment for wisdom. He could ask God for anything, but he realizes that while he is a great and powerful king, he is just a pauper before the real king of the universe begging for wisdom. And he recognizes that in himself, he doesn't have the strength, the wealth, the intelligence, the wisdom to govern a people of perhaps four million. And so as a pauper, he comes before the king and says, Lord, would you please give me a discerning, understanding, wise heart to lead them well, to govern with courage and wisdom. And the Lord gives it to him in spades. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life to boot. Again, Solomon, Solomon just had it all. And, and God in his grace, God in his generosity gave him all of this. He gave him wisdom and then so much more. You think of Solomon's wisdom. Have you ever tried to compose like a, a proverb? A really pithy statement that other people can live by. Ever tried that? I, I've actually done that. I've, I've tried to do that. 
Not too well, I might add. Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs, and they still stand the test of time today. I mean, think of it. Pride goes before the, a haughty spirit before destruction, I heard. Pride goes before the fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. The wise father disciplined the son whom he, yeah, he disciplines the son whom he loves, just as our father disciplines the child that he delights in. Ah, the fear of man is a, it's a trap. Oh, this is my favorite proverb, Proverbs 29, 25. Do you remember this? The fear of man, living before the applause of men and women, is a trap every time. But those who trust in the Lord are kept safe. On and on again, Solomon wrote these kinds of Proverbs, 3,000 of those puppies. Can you imagine how many Twitter followers he'd have today? <laughs> my word. Then on top of 3,000 Proverbs, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. He knew about love. He wrote about horticulture and biology. He was an expert in those fields as well. And kings and queens from all over the world traveled to across, from across desert lands to learn from him. Now, I, I personally don't ever expect to have the kind of wisdom that Solomon had. I'm not sure that any of us will. But all of us can grow in wisdom. You realize that? We can grow in wisdom. There's a couple ways that I have found that we're able to grow in wisdom, or at least that I've been able to grow in wisdom. One is by meditating on the book of wisdom, which is called Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, and many great Christian saints over the centuries have actually chosen to read a chapter of Proverbs every day and thereby read through the entire book of Proverbs each and every month. Billy Graham testified that he did that throughout most of his adult life. And last time I checked, he lived beyond reproach for 75 years in the public eye. Just incredible to think about someone living beyond reproach in the public eye for 75 years. Part of the key to his wisdom was meditating daily on the Proverbs. A good friend of mine works in IT, and he's really one of the smartest guys that I've ever known. And he describes the Proverbs as the father that he never had. He didn't have a dad. At least he didn't have one worth speaking of. And I asked him why he speaks of the Proverbs with such affection. And I watched as he would regularly quote and teach the Proverbs to his boys year after year, his boys and girls year after year. And he wrote back to me some time ago about his love for the Proverbs. And he said, what I found when I read the Proverbs was the stuff that I could use, the practical insights that were flat out better than anything else available. So as a young Christian man, I read and reread and memorized Proverbs, and I found them ready on my lips at all times. And they became for me the father that I never had. Became for me the wisdom that I longed to receive from my father but did not. You might choose to meditate on the Proverbs. Again, one chapter a day, and you see any number of them that stand out to you, and they're easy to memorize as you go. Second, in addition to meditating on the Proverbs, you want to simply pray for wisdom. Uh, one of my most common prayers is, God, I fall to my knees, and I must admit to you, I don't know what to do. I am not smart enough for this. I am not wise enough for this. I am not intelligent enough for this. Because God doesn't promise us wealth. Sometimes we wish he did. I'm personally glad he doesn't. He doesn't promise us health. 
but He does promise us wisdom. One of the great pearls of the Scriptures is James 1, verse 5. Let's read James 1, verse 5 out loud from the screen. Would you join me? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be, it'll be given to you. Oh, what a great promise. You lack wisdom? Raise your hand. Anyone else? Yes, every hand raised right now, both hands for me on stage. I lack wisdom. Ask God for it and he'll give it to you. Thank you, Jesus. He will. And this is what Solomon did. This is why he was known for wisdom, but because he asked God for it and God gave it to him in a spectacular way. Solomon was known for his wisdom, and then second, he was known as a worshiper. Once again, Solomon started out beautifully. He he was known for wisdom, and he was known for worship, and the first 20 years of his reign went exceedingly well. And it was glorious, though, the way he led worship here. If you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8, just five chapters to the right, you come to 1 Kings chapter 8, and you'll see the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. He spent his earliest years as king building this beautiful temple in Jerusalem so the people could come to this place and have a joint place of worship. It also served as the house for the tabernacle of God and with it the Ten Commandments. So there's this holy of holies where God would dwell with this temple. God would dwell with his people in Israel and in Jerusalem specifically. And there's never been a temple that's been built in Israel that's ever been able to match the beauty of this temple. The second temple period never matched the beauty of the first one. So he put his energy into building this temple, and he does it for, for this purpose of cultivating a worship of God. You'll see uh, his prayer at the dedication of the temple after seven years of building here in verse 22 and 23 of 1 Kings 8. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spreading out his hands toward heaven. Aren't you grateful that DeAndre helped us spread out our hands toward heaven this morning? I love it. I mean, this is a posture for worship, spreading out our hands toward heaven and saying, God, I give myself to you. I worship you. Or at the very least, I spread out my heart to you. I give you my heart. This is a really long prayer of dedication, and we won't read it all, but stick with me as I read some highlights from it, starting at verse 23. He said this, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it. As it is today, you are a promise-keeping God. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true." Just a side note here, Israel did fail to have kings on the throne. And why was that? Because they failed to follow. But even so, this promise was still fulfilled by the king who came after David, one named Jesus, whose kingdom reigns forever and ever. Amen. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you? How much less this temple I have built? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer. 
and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And this is a repeated pattern that you see throughout the remainder of the dedication. When you hear from heaven, would you please forgive us, God? You see this pattern of keeping short accounts with God again and again and again. And it goes on to verse 41. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know. What was that Abrahamic covenant? So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. God wants the world, and you see it here in the Old Testament as well. Verse 54, when Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar. Somewhere in this prayer, he falls to his knees, and he rises from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He's using his whole body in worship, and he stood and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Verse 59. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commandments as at this time. Mm. Amen? I, I mean, it's powerful. It's a long, long, powerful prayer, and I just scratched the surface of it. It goes on for this entire chapter. And hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people are there around the temple worshiping God in this moment. And they continue in this worship service for 14 days. Y'all think I go long sometimes. 14 days. And Solomon is the worship leader over this assembly as they bring their praises to God, as they bring their sacrifices to God, as they have a festival over these 14 days, and they dedicate themselves and their nation to him. Friends, we need this. We need to worship. Our hearts are made to worship. The simple fact is, if we do not worship God, we will worship something else. For some of us, it'll be ourselves. Who knows what it'll be for you? But for all of us, we are made to worship God. God has said eternity in the hearts of men and women. He's made us to worship him. If we don't, we will worship something else. So let me just ask as your pastor, how are you doing with what we talked about four weeks ago related to staying tuned in to God? Are you staying tuned in? Are you taking some time individually to get into your prayer chair on a daily basis, to be alone with God in prayer. Perhaps you prime the pump with some worship music. 
Then you spend some time in prayer. You spend some time in the word. And then is it your commitment to be back here on Sunday morning, not just because I need a bunch of people here on Sunday morning. It's not for me. It's for you. Church is a big deal, but because God made us to worship. And so we come together here on Sunday morning and we sing our praises to God and we get in the habit of worshiping because you know what? This is what we'll be doing for all of eternity. So you better get used to it. I mean, God will give us responsibilities in heaven. I'm sure of that too. We will have responsibilities based on our faithfulness here on earth. He will reward us with other responsibilities in heaven. But a big, big piece of what we'll be doing is worshiping with heart soul, mind, and strength for all of eternity. So, better get used to it. Solomon started off well. But again, somewhere he went from this posture on his knees and hands outstretched and eyes looking toward heaven to diverting his eyes from heaven and toward other things. And he got got off his knees and he ceased to humble himself, and he started to only care about his own desires. And the big idea that you got to take home from Solomon's life goes like this. A heart captured by earthly pleasures will come to ruin. This is exactly what happened in Solomon's life. His heart, he allowed his heart to be captured by earthly pleasures, and once it did, it didn't end well. His heart came to ruin. His life came to ruin. His heart got captured by earthly pleasures. He started well, but his final 20 years were disastrous. Now, now why were his final 20 years disastrous? Anyone? What did he do? What's that? I still can't hear you, Sharon. Idol worship. Okay, idol worship. What else? Women. Oh, he loved women. What else? Wealth. Pride. The next two words are wealth and women. Those are the other two W's though, that you want to hold on to as it relates to Solomon's life. His heart was captured by wealth and women. You see 1 Kings 10.14 up on the screen here. 1 Kings 10.14 says, the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly that he paid himself as an annual salary was 666 talents. Well, how much is a talent? A talent is 75 pounds. 75 pounds of gold times 666 talents times 16 ounces in a pound, times $1,300 per ounce of gold. In contemporary terms, this is about $1.2 to $1.3 billion a year, give or take. Pretty good salary he paid himself, huh? I mean, he kind of lost his way as he paid himself this salary. It goes on to say in chapter 10, this isn't part of your notes, but, but... it says, chapter 10, 16, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. Why? Just for kicks and giggles, I guess. I mean, last time I checked, gold is not the best material for making a shield. But he makes 200 large shields of hammered gold. It's like the guy who has 17 Ferraris in his driveway. Why? I don't know. Just because. I have the money to do it. So that's what Solomon does, and and as he does, he loses his heart for God. He had 14,000 chariots and 12,000 horses during peacetime. Silver was as common in Jerusalem as stones. 
Now, that wealth itself was not a bad thing. We need to be sure to say that well whenever we talk about wealth, that God gives us the ability to wealth, and he gives some people astounding ability to produce wealth, and that's not a bad thing. You look at Warren Buffett, and last time I checked, he's worth $84 billion. Woo! Makes Solomon seem small in that area, okay? But he seems to do some wonderful things with that wealth, at least based on what I've read. I don't, I don't know for sure, but based on what I've read. So wealth in itself is not, not a bad thing, but it makes you pause well when you see someone hammering 200 gold shields because he's got so much gold just swimming around his palace. Like, have we lost our priorities? As you look out and you see the poor among you and you remember the commands of God to take care of the widow, the poor, the immigrant, and the fatherless, have we lost our priorities? It makes you pause when you see a man spend seven years building his glor- this glorious temple to God, but then he spends his next 13 years building his own house, and his own house is twice the size of that temple. Hmm. Priorities. Wealth captured his heart. Now again, God has given some of us in this room the gift to produce wealth, and there's no shame in that if God has given you that gift. But because this holds such power over our hearts, Jesus says it holds so much power that it can clutch at our hearts and that we are tempted to either worship God or money. Because it holds so much power over our hearts, we are wise to say, is this starting to capture my heart? And what am I going to do proactively to save, to give to God's purposes in the world, to live with a kingdom mindset, and then to spend on myself lest it grab hold of my heart. God, of course, warned Israel about this in Deuteronomy when they were starting to ask for a king. Deuteronomy 17 says this about the king that they're going to ask for. When you enter the land and you say, let us set a king over us so we could be like all the other nations around us, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon had 12,000 of his own horses. Check. Solomon had 700 wives. Check. Solomon paid himself $1.2 billion a year. Girls, glory, and gold. Each of them helped take Solomon's heart down. If I could say for the ladies, boys, glory, and gold, I'd do that too, but it doesn't have quite the alliterative power. If only Solomon would have practiced what he preached, right? I mean, you read the book of Proverbs, and it's amazing the kind of wisdom that he had, and he warns other people against the dangers of lust. He warns other people against the dangers of accumulating too much wealth and allowing it to clutch on your heart. But he, like us, struggles in this. The longest journey on earth, as I've said before, is from head to heart. The 18 inches between our brain and our heart is the longest journey on earth. 
And Solomon had such difficulty making that journey between head and heart that wealth and lust for women took him down. One final passage here from 1 Kings 11 tells us how far he descended. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He went back to Egypt and got Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and three hundred concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. You know, it deserves to be noted that the blueprint for marriage given to us in the Bible is a man will leave his father and mother, a woman will leave her father and mother, they will cleave to one another, and they will become one flesh. And Solomon is like others in the Old Testament in that he practiced polygamy. But it needs to be stated here that that's something that the Old Testament describes, which God never prescribed. Again, as you read the Old Testament, you see many things that the Bible describes, which God never prescribed. And God certainly never prescribed this for Solomon. There's two reasons that God did not prescribe this for Solomon, and you see it in what happens to his life hereafter. The first reason God prescribes for us just one partner is because we lose our stickiness toward our spouse as we give ourselves to other lovers. God's not a cosmic killjoy. The reason he wants you to hold out for your one spouse for life is because so much cognitive neuroscience is showing us today that as people bind themselves sexually with multiple partners, they lose their stickiness toward anyone. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. He lost his stickiness toward any woman. Then on top of that, he went after their gods. So God is so concerned about intermarriage here, not because it has anything to do with race, not because it has anything to do with nationality, nothing whatsoever to do with either of those. It's about, do you cleave your heart together with one who worships a different God than you? And if you choose to do that, you are walking on thin ice. As your pastor, let me just tell you, if you choose to do that, you are walking on thin, thin ice. Because what Solomon shows us, and what so many lives have shown me as I've been a pastor for 15 years is, we think that we will convince them to follow our God, but oftentimes they convince us to follow after their gods, whatever they might be. A heart that's captured by earthly pleasures comes to ruin. And again, there are no shortage of contemporary examples to demonstrate this. Let's just bring the rubber to the road here. Solomon started off well, and he ended up so terribly, and why was that? Did you get one of these plastic coins as he came in today? Could you take that out for just a moment? This plastic coin represents the temptation of our affections. Here's the deal. God really wants our affections. 
He really wants our hearts. He really wants our worship. And each of us would have any number of different temptations that would vie for our affections to bring our heart away from God and bring our heart toward this, whatever it might be in your life. I've written a word on my plastic coin to remind me of something that can take my heart away from God if I allow it. What would it be for you? What would it be for you? Perhaps you take a moment, even though this afternoon, to write a single word on this plastic coin with a Sharpie marker that would represent what tempts you, what tempts to take your affections, to take your heart's worship away from God and toward a less wild lover. And it'll be different for each of us. You might write that down and put it in your pocket and you take it out throughout the week and as you take it out, you pray over that and you say, God, I surrender this potential temptation, this potential affection over to you because I want my heart to be devoted to you. For some of us, it'll be the love of money and the love of what money can buy. And for others of us, it'll be status and how I might look before you what other people think of me and what other people think of my kids and do my kids always act just the right way. And for others, it'll be unhealthy relationship with sex or food or alcohol or any number of different things can be unhealthy. But what is it for you that tempts to take your heart from the living God and pull your affections to something less? We have no indication in Scripture that Solomon ever repented. He went down this terrible path, and he was stuck there. I want to tell you this morning that you have an opportunity to repent. If you recognize, well, what it is that can take your heart today, today is the day. Don't wait another day. Tomorrow is not promised. God, I give you my heart. I recognize that I'm tempted to give my affections to something less than you. And I promise you, my friends, whatever would be on this cheap plastic fake coin, it cannot deliver what it attempts to promise. It will entice, but it won't ever deliver. The promise from our God is that he will forgive us not just seven times, but 70 times, seven times. And so we give our hearts back over to him. And we remember that a heart which is captured by earthly pleasures will come to ruin. But the heart that's captured by heavenly things, the heart that's captured by heavenly things will come to joy. I know I just made it heavy in this room. But I wonder if you would just close your eyes as I pray a word of Scripture over you. And perhaps you would consider these words that come out of Colossians chapter 3 that speak to the antidote to these temptations. We are constantly tempted to be captured by less wild lovers than the real God. But this passage from Colossians 3 speaks to God's promise that he will capture our hearts if we allow him. Would you close your eyes? Perhaps allow these words to sink into your hearts and allow me to pray over you today.
since you, my friends, have been raised with Christ, oh, please, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Set your minds now on things above, not on earthly pleasures. For you died. The old you is dead. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So would you set your hearts and your minds on heavenly things. So Father, we ask that you would help us to do just this. May we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We admit to you that we are all prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Would you set our hearts on the resurrection of Christ and the promise of eternity? Would you Fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Would you forgive us by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? There might be some people here in this room today who haven't made work with God in some time. They, they haven't been honest with God in some time. And maybe you're in that spot today that you say, I really haven't repented of the way that I've given my heart to something less than Christ. And you simply look up at the cross and you remember that he is the author and the perfecter of your faith who will forgive you right now as you admit that to him. You say, Lord Jesus, would you take my life again? I give you my heart. Would you envelop me by your love? Friends, let's stay tuned in to the Holy Spirit of God this week. As he leads us daily, let's, let's feast on the goodness of God. And I pray, Lord, for this church. Pray for this great church. In the words of that old hymn, the pleasures of this world would go strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. God, you're able to do this. You're able to change us from the inside out. Receive us now as a living sacrifice unto you. May we be holy and acceptable in your sight, we ask in Jesus' name.